0: Good morning, everybody. I have a proclamation for you this morning, a prediction, if you will, in keeping with the theme of our message today. I put it on paper because I think it's really important, but I come to you with a proclamation. Those of you who are listening to this on tape are probably wondering, why is everybody laughing at Jim's prediction. But I have it for us this morning. In keeping with our our, our theme of what we're looking at, we have two portions in uh, in the book of Thessalonians that we're looking at. The first one is the first, or the last part of chapter four, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And then we have the beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And those are divided into two different entities or segments, if you will. The first one deals with a question that Paul was answering for the people at Thessalonica. And the second part is all about timing. But if you use the Brown Pew Bibles, you'll find these passages on page 1840. And I'm going to read the final the left behind. Now the sleep that Paul is talking about is death. It was a fairly common way of expressing death in biblical times, a lot like we would say today, passing away. They would often say someone is um, asleep, the sleep of death. The question the Thessalonians had was what happens to the brothers and sisters who have died as Christians before the coming of Christ, are they going to miss out on the promises that Christ made? In 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5, to Peter expresses in his letter to the uh, Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he expresses to them what those promises were. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now it would be understandable for the Christians that Paul was writing to to be thinking that Christ would be coming within their generation and in fact I believe they wanted Christ to return and who wouldn't we talk about persecution today and worldwide there is some very real and heavy-duty persecution going on for Christians and these Christians in Thessalonica faced every bit the same kind of persecution and it would have just been natural for them to say now would be a good day to come Lord as they first faced the opposition to the gospel. A preacher once made the comment that whenever Paul went into a city, the citizens there started a riot. Whereas this evangelist replied, whenever I enter a city, they serve tea. How different times have changed. Now Christians use the term today, rapture. And we use it to describe the event that Paul was talking about here the coming of Christ with the the shout of the archangel, the blast of the trumpet as he comes and meets in the air those who have first fallen asleep in Christ, and then those who are still alive on the earth when he returns. Now, the word rapture is not actually part of a biblical nomenclature or specific terminology, it's actually a word that we use to describe an event. The word rapture comes from the Latin word rapturo, which means caught up. And that word is taken from the original Greek, which means to um, snatch or to take away. So these are descriptive words of the event, but it's not an actual technical name for the event itself. In in today's world, there's a a meteorological term called cumulonimbus. And pilots and meteorologists use this. And it's a technical name for a cloud formation that everybody else simply refers to as a thunderstorm. That's a technical entity. Rapture isn't from the Bible. But by all means, don't get hung up on that. Um, It's perfectly okay to use the word rapture. But we just have to be careful not to teach that it was a technical term from that time. It's a term that we use to describe the event. 1 Thessalonians... uh, Chapter 4, verse 17. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's how my NIV translation translated. The word caught up, snatch, or to take away. And that's what Jesus Christ will do when he returns. He will snatch or take away his bride, the church. While we're on the idea of rapture, These past few weeks, I had more than just a cast on my hand. I had a lot of time. And it it was great because I did a lot of studying, and I got lost in the Internet. And I got away on a whole lot of bunny trails. And it was really interesting. And one of the bunny trails that I got going on was what are people's opinions as to when the rapture will occur, not with regards to a specific day or time, but rather with regards to end-time prophecy, as in the book of Revelation. And I found out that there are kind of four camps. Three of them revolve around the seven-year tribulation period, and one is kind of in its own camp. But I found there are people, and they gave arguments, and as I read them, they all had convincing arguments, and so did the other camps. But some believe that the rapture will occur before the tribulation period, before that seven-year period of tribulation. That's the pre-tribulation period. Some believe that that will, will occur during the middle of that seven-year period, and some believe it will be post-tribulation. And then there was another camp who had the uh, the argument that the tribulation period will be part of the second coming of Christ. It won't be a separate entity, but it will be part of. Now, the... Rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate entities. Even if you believe that they are occurring at within the same time span, they are two separate things. You see, the rapture occurs when Christ returns to snatch or take away his elect, his Christians. Whereas the second coming of Christ is more about when Christ returns to pass judgment on those who have rejected all that Christ taught. Now, I don't have time to go into all of those arguments, and that's not my intent here today. That's a multi-week Bible study in and of itself. But what I want to take a look at today is um, what the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians thought and what Paul taught them about this. Now, the Thessalonians may not have only been worried about what happens to Christians who have died before the rapture, But after Paul explained this, were they also thinking about, well, what happens then in the meantime to the people who have fallen asleep or died as Christians before Christ returns? Are they just left in limbo until Christ returns? One only has to remember what happened on the cross as Jesus was crucified and the thief beside him who confessed his life to Christ. And Jesus said, today you will be with me. In paradise today, those who die and have confessed Christ as their Savior with a repentant heart are instantly in the presence of God. I don't know how God does this, I don't know what the experience is like, I don't know what it's going to be involved with, but paradise sounds pretty good to me. Even Paul, in one of his epistles, said, I wish I could leave this life now and be with Jesus Christ. But he realized he still has work to do here on this earth. Those who have predeceased us and are in heaven right now will someday receive a new and imperishable body as is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, what do we know from this passage that Paul is addressing to the Thessalonians? What we know is that he was teaching them not to grieve like the rest of the world. See, the world, which has no faith in God or heaven or hell, simply believes that when the body dies, your soul, your spirit dies with it, that's end of it, no more story after that, you're just food for the worms. But for those Thessalonians who put their trust in Christ, and by extension those of us today who have done the same thing, when the archangel comes, when the trumpet call of God blasts, when Christ descends from the heavens um, below to us below, then nobody is left behind. Those who are predeceased are going to meet Christ in the air just as those who are living. Nobody is going to be left behind. We'll all be united with Christ in the air. And how cool is that? When Benjamin Franklin was 23 years old, he wrote wrote a mock epitaph for his grave. He died many years later, and I don't know what he thought about afterwards, but this epitaph is inscribed on different plaques. But his epitaph that he wrote for himself was, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. D.L. Moody, as he lay dying on his deathbed, proclaimed, The earth recedes, heaven opens before me. Catherine Booth, the wife and found, of the founder of the Salvation Army, cried out as she lay dying, The waters are rising, but I am not sinking. George MacDonald, an English novelist, explained, I came from God, and I'm going back to God, and I won't have any gaps of death in the middle. And finally, John Wesley summed up the faith of the early Methodist in four simple words. Our people die well. Paul's reassurance was that of a loving father to his child, to his children. Don't be afraid. All will be well. Don't worry. It's all under control. We will be with the Lord forever, regardless of where you are. Pass it on, was Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians. What an incredible encouragement those words are to anybody who reads or to hears them, who has placed their faith in God and in Jesus Christ. We have a future of joy to look forward to. And Paul wanted to express that to his children in a way, if you will. And Paul thought of his churches as children. And he often talked about how early Christians needed to proceed from the infant stage, where they only could be fed milk, to the more mature stage, when they can then start eating um, adult food. They were his kids. Even though they belonged to Christ, they were his children. This past Thursday, when I was in the the, uh, fracture clinic, and I was waiting to get my cast taken off, I was in a room with uh, two exam beds, and a mother was um, escorted in with her little boy. Couldn't have been more than six years old. He just had his cast taken off. I saw him before he went in. It went from his wrist around his elbow and up his arm. And his arm was bent for I don't know how many weeks. And in his quiet, scared voice, he said, I'm scared, Bob. I'm scared. And she tried to reassure him. She said, it's okay. He said, I don't want another needle. And she said, no, you had your needle the first time because you were in a lot of pain when you broke your arm. And she kept reassuring him, reassuring him. And eventually, he started to be reassured. And towards the end, um, um, when I was leaving, he was still there waiting to see the doctor. They were playing video games on the cell phone. And uh, uh, he was comforted. And that's what Paul was doing with the uh, Christians in Thessalonica. Well, that's the first half that we have of our story today. The what happens to those who die. The second part is the first ten verses in chapter 5. And we can take a look at those right now, starting at verse 1 in chapter 5. Now brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, As labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with Him together. The second part of our message today the timing. When will this happen? Well, many people have tried to put a date or a time to this. And in fact, if you remember back to when I spoke on um, the uh, portion in John where Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And I gave a defense for how do we know the Bible is truthful. We took a look at some of the the, uh, disciples of some of the apostles and um, how we can trace that chain of custody to indeed show that the Bible is accurately recorded. Well, John had three uh, disciples that we have accurate writings for in historical um, records. He had uh, Polycarp, Papias, and Ignatius. Now, Ignatius and Polycarp had a disciple called Irenaeus. Irenaeus had a disciple called Hippolytus. Hippolytus and Irenaeus predicted that Christ would return in 500 A.D. It didn't happen. Even the early Christians, disciples, theologians tried making predictions, even though it was futile. Over the last 2,000 years, there's been 40 recorded public declarations of, I know when Christ is going to return. They've all come and gone. There are six more that have been predicted within the next century of, I know when Christ will return. Seven, counting mine. It's probably not going to get much uh, traction, but uh, it's there. Now, the latter verses of chapter 4 were presented by Paul with joyful hope. The beginning of chapter 5 is a solemn warning. Jesus, when teaching his disciples about the signs that will point to the end of the present age, as he did in Matthew chapter 24, warned that no one knows the day or the hour. He said, even the angels in heaven don't know. Only the Father knows. Now, Paul indicates in the first verse of chapter 5 that he has already spoken to them about it. This is nothing new. In the first verse, he says, about times and dates, we do not even need to write to you. Paul does warn the Thessalonians, though, that it will happen suddenly and without warning. Again, going back to Jesus and his interaction with his disciples about his prophecy, about the warnings of the coming of the uh, the end of the, the age. Chapter 24, verses 37 to 41 reads As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left behind. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left behind. Now, when I was studying, I got interested in this as to what are the different views as far as the fate of, as Jesus used in his example, the two men in the field. One's taken, one's left behind. The two women, one is grinding, one's left behind. What's the fate of the ones who are taken versus the fate of the ones who are left behind? Some interpret the fate of those who are taken to be that of judgment. Some interpret the fate of those who are taken to be that of of salvation, as it will be in the rapture. So you've got two differing views. And again, there's a lot of good arguments one way or the other. And I invite you to look into this yourself. Go take some of those bunny trails. of When the rapture is going going to happen around the end time prophecy... What's going to happen to these two groups of people? Take a look at it. You may not come to a conclusion, but you're going to be blessed by the information you have with regards to the lesson that Jesus and Paul was trying to teach here. Some believe that those who are taken, as Jesus described them, will be indeed meant for destruction and judgment. Just as Jesus said in the days of Noah, So men and women were given away in marriage, living life, fat and dumb and happy, and then the flood came and took them all away. Noah was saved, but the people were cast into judgment. Some people will say that, uh, um, no, it will be like the rapture. Those who are taken will be saved. Don't get hung up on the surrounding outer circle of that bullseye. Concentrate on that inner circle. What's the lesson being taught here? The lesson that's being taught here is to be prepared. Don't get caught off guard. Sometimes I wonder if God is up there and he's looking down on us and he's thinking, how thick are you people? I've given you all the clues and you still can't get it after 2,000 years. But I also think perhaps God is shielding us from all the answers because he knows in our finite wisdom we'd never understand them nor could we endure the answers if we knew ahead of time. Jesus warned those ahead of time. Paul was warning the Thessalonians ahead of time. Paul repeats that message. At the end of chapter 4, Paul is answering a question. In the beginning of chapter 5, he's reminding them of what they already know. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you already know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Perhaps um, Paul taught them before when he was with them. He was reminding them about that now in this period. But I believe that Paul in the beginning of chapter 5 is no longer talking about just the rapture. I believe he's talking in the broader sense about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The point when Christ will come. And judge an unrepentant earth. Paul's reminder of what is to come acts as a warning that destruction will come without any advance, advance notice. It will come quickly, without warning. Chapter 3 and verse 5. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There's no second chance at that point. There is no out. If God has you pegged for judgment, it's judgment you will receive. But Paul then goes on to tell the Thessalonians that even though no one but God knows the day and the hour, you should not be surprised, because no longer are you in the dark, regarding these events. They, along with Paul, have the foreknowledge of what must take place. And Paul goes on to tell them in verse 6, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. There's that word sleep again, and here's where it gets confusing, because Paul is not talking about sleep in the terms of death, but rather he's looking at it as more of a metaphorical form as far as... um, a spiritual slumber, a spiritual sleep. In other words, Paul is telling the readers, don't be like those who are ignoring the warnings of Jesus and the apostles of what is to come. Be awake, be alert, be ready. Verse 8 in chapter 5, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. In a a way, Paul is telling the Thessalonians at this point to live each day as if Christ is going to return. Don't worry about the future times. Live each day, live today as if Christ is going to come. And we're getting close to 12 o'clock, so I better finish the sermon according to my prediction. (laughs) Paul was telling them, don't be caught in a spiritual slumber. Be prepared, be ready. Have your spiritual house in order. The same way as if you're expecting a house guest. If you've got house guests coming, I mean, who doesn't clean the house? Clean the toilets. If they're going to be overnight guests, put clean linen on the uh, bed. When Stephen was a, 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 a young child and Carol and I were vacuuming the living room, his question was, who's coming? <laughs> Not that that's the only time we vacuumed the carpet, but in his eyes it was. We need to live today and each day expecting Jesus to arrive at any moment. Faith, love, and hope are to be the fragrances that penetrate Jesus' nostrils when he returns and he looks at your spiritual house. Have you got it in order? Are there still things you need to get right with God? There's going to be a lot of surprised people when that day comes. Don't be one of them, was Paul's message. When somebody dies, it's natural to mourn. Christ did so at the grave of Lazarus. But to mourn without hope for those who have predeceased us as Christians is unbiblical. I like the word sleep that's used in the Bible. I like it even though it can be complicated sometimes in our language today. But when I lie down at night, I go to sleep expecting to wake up and start my day afresh. As Christians, when we die, the disunity between our body and our spirit and soul is temporary, just as natural sleep is temporary. It doesn't last forever. If we die before Christ returns, a day will come when our spirit and our soul will be reunited with a new body, a version 2.0 that's going to be so much better than version 1.0. No arthritis, no broken wrists. It's going to be so much better more beautiful. The biggest lesson Paul and Jesus teaches us today is to be ready and to encourage one another in the same. Pay no attention to those who have it figured out. If you see somebody walking around with a sign that says, Christ returns at 12 o'clock today, 12.30 in Newfoundland, be kind to him. <laughs> but ignore the message he's trying to purpeate, to, um, um, to put out there but walk with a preparedness so that you will not be surprised or found not ready for Christ returns when it does occur. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You this morning that we could gather here today in Your name, in Your Word, in Your Spirit, that we could gather here today to learn about Your warnings, Your warnings for the world. Lord, let's just not leave here this morning being glad I have that foreknowledge, that forewarning. As we leave these doors, Lord, let it be our mission to warn those around us that they too have to face the warning, that they have to make a decision whether or not to heed that warning or to plow full steam ahead and not be concerned with what lies ahead. Lord, let the city, the town, the houses outside of us be our mission field this week as we come into contact with people around us, families, neighbors, co-workers. Let us engage in conversation as the opportunity arises that we can not only forewarn them about what will come, but also tell them about the hope, the security, the future that that, that, uh, lies out there for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, that they will then not have to be afraid of the future of the judgment. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've spent together. And may we be found again next Sunday in your word, in your spirit, in your love. I pray for these things in your name. Amen.